0: Welcome to the South Carolina State Library's podcast, Library Voices SC. I'm Curtis Rogers, Communications Director, and today I'm pleased to have with us in our virtual podcast studio, Dr. Eliza Braden, Assistant Professor of Instruction and Teacher Education at the University of South Carolina's College of Education, of which I'm a graduate. So uh, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thank you. Thank you for having me today.
0: We're glad you're able to spend some time with us and and talk to us about some some library related and education related topics. Okay. So uh, before we start, though, go ahead and tell our listeners a little bit about yourself and what you do at the university.
1: OK, um, well, I'm an assistant professor of elementary education, so I teach literacy methods primarily to um, undergraduate students and I also teach culturally relevant, culturally sustaining pedagogies to our masters and our undergraduate candidates.
0: Okay, and how did you get interested in this this area, and what's your educational background?
1: I graduated from Mercer University um, in Macon, Georgia, and I received my my master's from the University of Tennessee in Knoxville, And it was there that I was able to do some research, um, engage in some uh, graduate research with professionals, primarily professional families um, around home literacy practices. And I was always engaged in home um, and more intrigued by home literacy because I was aware of the ways in which literacy was used within my community, within my family, and so, for my master's research, I wanted to look more in depth around home literacy and so I was you know very excited about what I found um, with the families that I worked, worked with for my graduate project or my thesis. Um, but what appeared to be missing to me is the ways in which different communities take up literacies so you know I'm a black woman, so the ways in which literacy is used and regarded in the Black church. The ways in which, you know, the experiences of my mother and my grandmother and my family members, you know, we engage in books with in different ways or different types of materials for different reasons. So I was really, really intrigued by that and I felt like I was not really getting that. Um, I had another other questions that I wanted answered. And so that's where my PhD program came in at Georgia State University in Atlanta, Georgia. And so that's where I kind of hone in on the ways in which different communities, primarily Black and Latino uh, families and children, take up literacies in, in various ways and how they bring that to the classroom. And so now my work is to help teachers, practicing teachers, think more deeply around the ways we can honor the vast histories, um, the cultural and linguistic repertoires that children bring to classrooms.
0: That's interesting. And I've never really Mm -hmm. heard the phrase home literacy. So how does that cross over Mm -hmm. to homeschooling?
1: Let's see. Well, well, home literacy is, you know, the, the books you read, how you even if you're making something as far as the way reading is used in different ways, so the so different like, practices, instance, like, if, if you're child, reading a re- recipe,
0: right? Exactly, that's what I was yeah, thinking. If yeah, a child was helping a parent in the kitchen with a recipe, you, yeah, you're even going into food literacy,
1: yeah, yes, yes. You're reading, okay, just reading the list, you're in, you can transfer that on, on to reading, um, informational reading as well you know, how to do something, you know, different people that you highlight um, as far as home literacy. So their home literacy is so expansive. And but it's separate home, from homeschooling. Homeschooling. is separate from homeschooling. I think, um, you know, with COVID going on, I think we are going to see a lot of parents try to mimic what, is, what occurs in the classroom and so and but I think what i would I would tell parents is to think deeply about what you are already doing at home that helps build students' literacy skills and also you know their power as readers, you know, and parents do a lot, and families do a lot, but they don't recognize it because it doesn't look like traditional schooling and that and but that's not what we want readers to be able to do. We want them to think critically around text. We want them to enjoy text. And so they enjoy it in different ways at home. So why not use that as an opportunity? So as, you know, I'm just hearing a lot of going on uh, the ways in which families are trying to think deeply about how am I going to get through e-learning or virtual learning or I'm going to create these pods with different families. I think they really need to think deeply about how they can re envision education right now while they 're at home, this is a great opportunity to do that
0: It really is, and, and as you mm-hmm. were talking, I was thinking back to my childhood, and you know in some families it 's a natural thing to read to children and let children figure mm-hmm. out what they enjoy reading and I had a little flashback to ha- having the forty five records with the follow along book. And Mm -hmm. one of my favorite things to listen to were the stories about G.I. Joe. And so so I just had a little flashback about, you know, that kind of home literacy because my parents were always able to uh, encourage me to read what I wanted to read. And I think that's Mm -hmm. an important part of the puzzle.
1: Mm -hmm. Yes. And and my, you know, my family as well. I remember reading, you know, uh, Virginia Hamilton's The People Who Could Fly on tape. On the, So my mother had a cassette tape and she would put it in the cassette player and play that for me. And I would listen to, I had the book in front of me and then I would listen to it as well on tape. So um, I think that's very important that we first regard what interests our readers and our kids before we try to just push books and put push a different literacy on them that that's not really um, of interest to them
0: right and and that kind of leads into the the conversation that i really wanted to have with you uh, Mm -hmm. today and that's to talk about how schools and libraries work with summer reading programs there are Mm -hmm. a lot of public libraries who sponsor summer reading programs. A lot of them work in concert with their local school districts to Mm -hmm. make sure that they have the appropriate reading lists. And I kind of wanted to get your take on everything there is about summer reading that may be important and kind of how your areas of research fit into that.
1: So what we know is that students or children need um, a variety of texts, okay, they need volumes of texts, and they need high interest texts, and they need to read humorous texts, they need to read, um, you know, magazines, they need to read fiction stories, they need to read a variety of texts in different ways, and also continuous texts. So when I talk about continuous text, it's a text with, a, you know, a whole text, not a text with just in a, a, par- a paragraph form as well. And they need to hear people read aloud. So what happens is that over the summer, what kids begin to miss a lot is that those interactions and within those interactions with either teacher and peers, they're able to talk about text. They're really to take to able to talk deeply about engaging within the text and beyond the text and think about the text. And so when they're not in a school environment or around in um, a classroom environment, they often lose that growth that they have made over the school years. So that's why reading programs are so important. So I know like in the state of New York, they did a large study in which they were looking at the ways in which um, summer programs, summer reading programs have really engaged um, young children and kept that reading growth going. After, um, also, Catherine, Dr. Katherine compton Lilly in 2006, she gave some examples in which summer reading programs um, Allow students to grasp those volumes of text. And also it's a way to engage families. So when students are not in classrooms around their peers and their teachers, then we find ways through some reading programs to build opportunities for them to think deeply around text with their families. And then, you know, pre-COVID, we would be in, we would be in a library and they could meet other children and talk about texts. You know, myself, my baby, she's only two years old, but even, you know, last year, I remember, um, and even during this, the year, we would go to Richmond County, the different programs that were put on, and she would meet other kids, and she would listen to someone read aloud and engage and, and with the texts and turn with other kids so um, that, those are some of the benefits of summer reading programs and why they are important um, for our, our readers. And
0: I know that um, a lot of times when I've spoken to uh, librarians or educators, they always seem to say, well, studies have shown, you mm-hmm. know, and, and not necessarily cite any kind of specific study. Mm-hmm. And so I'm wondering, you know, what do studies actually show about, students who don't read during the summer versus students who do read during the summer
1: um well it what we do know for example there's alexander and whistles and um olson study that summer reading loss accounts for about 80 percent of the gap between students from low and high socioeconomic status um and so that like you say access to materials and access to those more skilled peers um or just peers in general that can um account for that 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 loss we also know that there's a, a decline in reading growth or um during that that time so there, there are so many studies several studies um there's Four men and Dignasto, um, um, like I referred to, there's Compton Lilly and some colleagues who did an instance of study around um, summer reading programs and the ways in which we include families in those conversations um, with young children. And so I can provide you with some citations and references that um, your listeners can look at we do know that there is summer reading loss and that summer programs are important to helping kids continue to grow as strong readers.
0: Well one of the things you mentioned is that there's an importance in different types of Mm -hmm. home literacy and different types of reading and I know Mm -hmm. that reading programs especially summer reading programs have really changed over the years because when i was in middle school we got a list of books and that was a, that was it you know yeah, <laughs> these are the yeah. titles that you have to read over the summer mm-hmm. and you can choose seven of these or something like that but mm-hmm. nowadays libraries you know are providing access to audiobooks they're mm-hmm. providing access to online magazines and a lot of summer reading programs are not necessarily asking for the number of books that a student has read, but they're asking for the number of hours that a student has read. And it can be mm-hmm. a combination of all those different types of mm-hmm. books. So can you talk a little bit maybe about the importance of those multiple formats and, and why it's important to mm-hmm. have in those multiple formats?
1: Mm-hmm. So I think the, the multiple formats, um, they are trying to account for the ways in which Uh, we consume literacy in the 21st century. The way we consume literacy now has, um, in 2020, has changed um, over the past 5, 10, 15 years. So where we were um, often, um, we would often go into a library and go to the card catalog system and pick up a book. Now we can go to the web. And so... Different readers today are young children, and um, many like to read texts online. You know, that's the way they engage. And so I see, as you say, that a lot of programs are using ebooks and audiobooks and so all we and we also know research wise that the number of the time spent also accounts for reading growth as well so that's why something as simple as independent reading during in class is so important that we give our readers time in ta- class to process to engage in the in, in the reading process and so that's the same Understanding that we want to mimic during the summer is that we want to give them that time, just give them the actual time to engage in literacy in a variety of ways through an audiobook, through reading a magazine, through reading an ebook, or to through reading a, a print book if that's what they want to. So they consume literacies in the ways that fits their needs and as of interest. And that in itself also helps them grow as readers. They can still think about the text, think within within the text, think beyond a text, and that also helps them to grow developmentally um, as a reader.
0: And we know there are things like graphic novels who that are Mm -hmm. really important for some readers because of the visual aspect Mm -hmm. and I really appreciate what you're saying about giving students the time because myself, I am a very slow reader. And so it takes mm-hmm. me forever to read a book that might only be you know, 300 pages. And so I, yes. I need that time to really concentrate. Yes. But one of the other things that came to my mind when we're talking about these different formats is, and I'm wondering if you come across this in any of your studies or your research is, sadly, there's still a very big digital divide And Mm -hmm. there are a lot of families, especially in rural areas and here in South Carolina, we have a lot of rural areas who Mm -hmm. maybe don't have Internet access at home. Mm -hmm. You know, Mm -hmm. they would rely on the school or the library to have Mm -hmm. that access. And how does that affect home
1: literacy? I think it greatly affects home literacy when kids cannot access text in in a digital format because it think about it we want them to be able to engage in those 21st century skills as well to read text in different ways and not to say if they don't read it there but it's just giving them another another kind of tool in their toolbox as a reader okay i i can read text in this way but i think the most important thing is that they have access to a text. So we have to make sure that broadband access is more accessible, you know. Um, Can we create, you know, place hotspots in these areas where if students aren't able to um, access it in their homes, could they come to a local park and be able to get that access? They know if they come to this specific park in their area, I can, bring my tablet or my mother's phone or my father's phone and I can read texts and still I can go and play, but I can also sit and read um, and access um, a variety of texts that our different libraries offer. Um, As well as I'm thinking about the ways in which we create mobile Um, libraries as well. That's something that we might need to think about in rural communities. And there have been a lot of um, schools and different people you know, who have taken up this work, for example, in Dalton, Georgia, they have what they call um, Alice Inslee, who is the literacy coach or the uh, district coordinator, literacy district coordinator in that area. She has created what we call Big Red Reads. So basically every summer, she, through grant monies, she's able to provide a number of books to the community, to children who go to um, the local school, and they are able to go to different parks within that community, and students hand out books to kids, and then the kids come back the next week, and they return the books, and so there are books that they receive Throughout the, the summer, they, you know, check out books and then they receive books the next week. And at the end of the time, I believe at the end of the time, they also get books that to keep their special books that they really love. They get to keep some of the books as well. So we have to think really differently on the way that we provide access to kids and put books in their hand. I think that's the most important thing.
0: And that's one thing I would definitely encourage our listeners. If, you know, you're whatever community you're in, be sure and check with your local public library mm-hmm. and give them a call or go to their website. If you're able to visit their website and see, mm-hmm. you know, even if they have books that you can just pick up and, and just use for a week, you know, anything mm-hmm. that, that would help for summer reading.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And also there are apps that you can use, which will link to the um you, I'm sure you can go directly to the um to the library's website but also there are specific apps like Hoopla that allows you to link to say Richland County's library and so you can access an ebook and an audiobook. So you don't have to pay for a subscription audible and that's you know thinking about our low income students and students in rural communities they don't have have to have audible or have um, a paid subscription to epic you know when they're not in school they can go through hoopla and still access those books at their local libraries
0: definitely and there's also apps like overdrive and mm-hmm. uh, lots of different types of electronic books that are available mm-hmm. So yeah again definitely check with your local public library's website and see what's available
1: mm-hmm Mm -hmm. Um,
0: One of the other things that I like to ask uh, speakers is if they have any kind of personal or professional library stories they would like to share. If anything like pops out to you that maybe you have a fond memory of libraries about.
1: Well, you know, honestly, before I, you know, thought about becoming a teacher when I was a child, I wanted to be a librarian. (laughs) (laughs) I did because I, I mean, I love books as a child, and I I just remember mimicking the process that of, of a librarian where they would check you out. So they would open up the front co- open up the front cover. They would take out the little card and stamp it, and yes. I remember the librarian he or she would scan it somehow. And that's what comes to mind. So that's a real really vivid memory that I. I <laughs> that I have of when I was a child, just mimicking um, what a library to me, that process of going to the library. And, I, and I, I, en- I enjoyed it. I remember the first time I was probably around, I don't know, four or something, I received my library card and my mom you know, talked about it. It was really special. I could go and get these books. We would spend time there. So that's my library story. Yeah,
0: for a lot for a lot of kids, it really is a big deal because mm-hmm. it's really kind of one of the first things that is just for you, and it's like mm-hmm. you're getting to do what an adult does, you know. Mm-hmm. And yes. um, I'm so old. I, my first library card was um, this cardboard piece of paper with a little metal chip oh, inside wow. of it, and they used this press with a big handle to press. <laughs> <laughs> the, the metal part with the, um, my library card number on mm-hmm. it. And I remember thinking that was just the coolest thing.
1: <laughs> wow, that is.
0: So kind of in wrapping up, what, uh, what kind of research projects are you working on? I know with COVID-19, mm-hmm. we're kind of all uncertain what the fall semester is going to hold, mm-hmm. but um, what kind of things are you working towards?
1: So my research um, is geared towards around critical literacy. Like I said, I um, work with pre-service and in-service teachers to think about the ways in which we engage in um, social um, justice education in classrooms and also um, In incorporate critical consciousness. And I also do a lot of work with what we call critical multicultural literature. So literature to help kids think deeply around the world, about issues around the world, but also within their local communities as well. And so right now I'm working um, with two other colleagues on a critical content analysis. So an analysis of books around the Black Lives Matter movement, and also the ways in which um, police brutality is taken up within these children's books. So thinking about the nature of the ways in which anti-Blackness and anti-Black racism is so pervasive in our society um, now, and it's been pervasive for you know, years, centuries, <laughs> unfortunately, and so um, thinking about contemporarily the ways in which these narratives are taken uh, in children's books. So we are looking at children's books and examining the ways in which these stories and narratives are represented in texts. Because a lot of teachers are thinking deeply about um, the books that they are including when they go back to school in in the fall. They're thinking deeply about the types of books related to these issues that they are going to include in their classroom libraries or gives kids access um, digitally to these texts and, you know, the ways they might engage in book clubs creating podcasts, different ways in which they really want kids to really think deeply around these issues. So I think it's important that we don't just select any text, but we are mindful about the representations of people and their stories and their really lived experiences before we include those texts on our shelves and also in our digital backpacks or the ways in which we have access to those who are readers so that's the work that i'm doing um that's the most um recent study and i'm i'm also looking to, looking at with some other colleagues the possibilities of the ways in which um 19 has shifted the realities of our 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 black and um our black students as well so that's some of my work.
0: Well, it sounds like you've got a long road ahead of you, but a very Mm -hmm. important road because I I fully agree it's important that our educators are thinking very critically about social Mm -hmm. justice issues and Mm -hmm. what, you know, because there's a huge hidden curriculum in schools and that's something Mm -hmm. that through, um, through literacy, through reading, through home literacy, all those different areas are very important to explore no matter what race, um, mm-hmm. you know just so that everyone is is mm-hmm. very knowledgeable about what's going on around them.
1: hmm Yes. You know the and Often I have the question from, you know, teachers or just people in general, you know, the texts such as, and they might say something like, texts such as that or, or, or those type of texts, um, do you only have them for um, black and brown students? And I said, no, it's for all kids um, because we want them to understand the experiences. We want every child to under understand that they see themselves within a text but also see others in the ways in which they live and I and we know that when we understand the ways in which people live and they experience joy they experience struggle they experience challenges in life we're more likely to be more empathetic and that's what we talk we that's you know, humanizing. Everyone is a human and everyone should be respected. And that is what we want um, kids and we want every adult to understand as well. So that's the power of literacy. That's the power of a book. A books do can do that. They do do that. And so that's why we have to be mindful of the text that we are selecting in our classrooms, but also that we are highlighting as librarians um, in our our libraries.
0: Definitely. Well, it's certainly a lot to think about, and I, mm-hmm. I appreciate all the work you do, and and certainly thank you so much for being with us today.
1: Okay, thank you.
0: And thank you to our listeners. You can find Library Voices SC on Podbean, Stitcher, and TuneIn Radio, or you can add us on our favorite podcast app. Our podcast website address is libraryvoices.podbean.com. We love hearing from our listeners, so please send us your comments and suggestions for future topics. Library Voices SC is the official podcast of the South Carolina State Library. So until next time, this is Curtis Rogers. Thanks for listening.